This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Time can feel like it's in short supply. Between work, family, and friends, there's very little time left just for you. What would you do with an extra hour in your day? What's important to you? Therapy can help you find what matters to you so that you can do more of it. It's a great way to increase self-awareness, build a greater sense of purpose, deal with overthinking, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash be here now today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P.com slash be here now. Welcome to the Sufi Heart Podcast with Omid Safi, featuring teachings and stories from the wisdom of the Islamic tradition. Omid invites you to a meditation on the transformative power of love and recalling the necessity of healing our own hearts through healing the world. If you'd like to support Omid's podcast, please visit BeHereNowNetwork.com forward slash Omid. Hello, uh, this is Omid Safi. Welcome back to the Sufi Heart uh, podcast. And uh, this week we have the great pleasure of going through one of the great Sufi classics. Uh, the names of Rumi and Hafez are, of course, really well known to friends who are interested in the path of love. But uh, some of the other great classics are perhaps a little bit lesser known. And um, so this week we're going to be spending some time going through one of them. And this is the wonderful Sufi poet Attar. Uh, Attar, who is one of the formative influences on Rumi himself. Uh, in many ways, Rumi's great masterpiece, the Masnavi, is an homage towards Attar. Um, there's even some hagiographic stories, anecdotal stories, which are, you know, of uncertain um, historical authenticity, that um, an elderly Attar, he was um, a couple of generations older than Rumi, might have met uh, a young boy, Rumi, when Rumi and uh, his father had come to pay their respect to the already venerated uh, Attar. And uh, an Attar looks at Rumi, and of course he discerns in the young boy, uh, the great saint that he's going to turn into in his own right, and he notices that Rumi is respectfully walking behind his father. And uh, Attar smiles and in a very loving way says, look, uh, it's not every day that you get to see an ocean walking behind a lake. Um, that uh, the spiritual path is not about age, it is about one's closeness with God. Um, Attar is well known for having written a great number of spiritual classics. Uh, he has one book called Tazkaratul Awliya, uh, which is the remembrance of the friends of God. 
and that has been uh, available for a long time through a couple of different English translations. But the work that we're going to pay attention to today is usually known in English as Conference of the Birds. Conference of the Birds. And this has been translated into English and other European languages since the 19th century. It is originally, um, like so many other great Sufi classics, a work written in elegant Persian. And um, it is commonly referred to in English as Conference of the Birds, and probably the version that is most readily available to people is the translation done by a great American scholar, Dick Davis, and his scholarly wife, Afham Darbandi. Um, and they published this translation years ago through Penguin uh, as simply Conference of the Birds. And that translation, which was done, I believe, around 1984, uh, has probably been the, the way that Attar's classic has been um, made familiar to most readers. Uh, it's a beautiful translation, and they have done um, the almost impossible, which is to render the classical Persian into rhymed English couplets. So this takes, obviously, both an incredible familiarity with the Persian original and also a taste, a dhok, as we say, uh, for English poetry that conveys matters of the heart. And uh, Dick Davis uh, is, a, is a wonderful translator, a great scholar who has worked on Attar and Ferdowsi and a number of other great uh, poets. Um, and there's one minor criticism that, um, that many of us have, which is that uh, Dick Davis and, um, and uh, his wife, um, Afhamed Arbandi, make the decision to leave out the introduction that Attar included to his classic, the classic text, Mantegotteur, uh, Conference of the Birds. And Dick Davis uh, leaves out this translation because he says it's, it's um, too religious. And uh, he's more interested in matters of literature. Well, you know, I think uh, some of us think that um, that uh, things can be both great um, literary masterpieces and something that comes out of the um, religious and spiritual landscape of of um, humanity. So, I think what I'd like to do would be to take our time in our podcast and walk us through this text, Mantaroter, the conference of the birds, the speech of the birds, um, even the logic of the birds. The word mantir um, is commonly referred to as um, logic in Islamic sciences, um, but it comes from the same root, not which is to speak. This is when one speaks in a way that is intelligent. It is a speech where what is being referred to actually connotes the reality therein, so that if you speak the word love, you are actually addressing real love. And if you speak about tenderness, then you're actually addressing tenderness, that things and what is named match up together. And in that context is what the human being is called, the speaking animal. 
not merely that we babble, but that uh, we offer intelligent speech, speech that comes from the heart, and that whatever we speak of is actually um, conveyed and conveying its spiritual reality. Uh, the context of the story uh, of um, speech of the bird, it refers to a phrase from the Quran referring to the prophet Suleiman or Solomon. Um, Solomon in the Bible is a mighty king, and in the Quran he is both a king and a prophetic figure, and he's given dominion over both the seen and the unseen realms, uh, including uh, the fact that he is taught by God the speech of the birds. And that phrase, speech of the birds, which comes from the Quran, is what Attar uses as the title of his work. So uh, we're going to walk through a classic, a classic that in a Sufi context, typically people would have spent years and years um, studying under the guidance of a Sufi teacher. And, um, and perhaps they would have paused at so many lines and so many stories to uh, talk about the deeper meaning, the mystical meaning of these different lines. Um, and, and we will have a, a light and easy introduction uh, to these particular teachings. And um, so let's, uh, let's go ahead and do that. Um, so the story, as we mentioned, begins with this introduction. And as is uh, the typical way in so many of the Sufi classics, the introduction begins with uh, the mention and the praise of God at length. But this is not, um, this is not simply um, God as a distant king, but this is a, an ecstatic and passionate invocation of God. Uh, it is one wherein God is the source of all beauty, and we are we are calling upon this divine reality. So, uh, and and the way that uh, Atar begins our invocation of God in this particular story is not God as, if you would, the King the holy other, the one who stands beyond and outside. But he speaks about God uh, almost as what you would see in the Star Wars tradition as the force. Uh, God is the reality that binds us together. So he, he talks about um, uh, this. He says, um, look at how this world and that world are him, not other than him, and were there other, that also would be him. Uh, that jomliyik zotast, that all is of one essence, that all that exists ultimately is of this one divine essence, but qualified differently. Um, and, uh, and, and he's, he knows that people talk about God having a throne and the thrones being situated on uh, an ocean, on a divine ocean. And he says, yes, the throne is on the water and the water is on air. Forget water and air. All is God. 
that God alone exists and everything other than God is but a name. But a name. So it's almost this um, awe-inspired sense of calling upon God, of addressing God, uh, in which we are speaking about the divine as the totality of all that exists. Um, and he goes on to say uh, in this very touching passage that um, uh, he, strange how everyone is getting ready to set out on a quest, but far from all and yet sitting with him. All the universe is you, but no one is in sight. Right? So, so many of us have this experience that we feel as if we are so far from the divine beloved. But in reality, we're already sitting with God. We are keeping the company of the divine. And that you are not separate from the whole world. You are not separate from the whole universe. Uh, you are the totality of the universe. You're not a part of the universe. You are the whole universe. It says, the soul is hidden in the body, and you, meaning God, are hidden in the soul. O oh, hidden within the hidden, O oh, life of the soul. So in the same way that our souls animate our body, Attar says that God animates the soul. That God is the soul of the soul, the John of the John in Persia. And because of that, Attar takes this position that if we want to know God, we've come, we have got to come to know ourselves. That it's impossible to separate self-knowledge from divine knowledge. In that sense, we have to let go of the sense of God having a sense of direction. God is not up or down or in front or in the back or in the past or in the future. Atar says, oh, inward soul, outward soul, these are all you. Whatever say that you are not, even that is you. And in this beautiful way that so many of these mystical poets do, they give us these very vivid metaphors, and then they begin to undo it. So Attar says about 20 pages of these vivid description of the divine, and then he says, all right, it's time to close the mouth. Um, as a great contemporary Sufi, Pirzia, said recently, uh, if you wish to dive in the ocean looking for pearls, you have to keep your mouth closed. Uh, and the Sufis are very aware of this, that there's a time to speak, there's a time to use language, there's a time to use thought, and then there's a time for repose. There's a time 
to abstain from speaking and to go inward, to go within. So here Attar says, you've not lost anything. Cheesy Majui, seek nothing. Whatever you say, he is not that. Say nothing. Cheesy Majui, cheesy Magui. Seek nothing, say nothing. And this nothingness, this is such a paradoxical experience for so many of us. We try to value ourselves. We try to establish the worth that we have by emphasizing that we're somebody, that we're important, that we matter, that we have money, that we have a good name, that we have health, that we have a reputation. And the Sufis keep reminding us to let go, to let go of trying to be somebody, to become no one, to become nothing, and then God will give us her everythingness, his allness. Ironically, the one thing that God doesn't have is nothingness, and that Poverty, that humility, that nothingness, that utter and absolute dependence on God is the one thing that we can bring. And we're going to come back to that story in a little bit of time. So, um, Attar continues on, on this journey and um, he drops a couple of hints about what the path looks like. So he gives one line about, do you know at all how the seeker sees the path, experiences the path? He says, the further you go on the path, the more you see the path extending in front of you. So sometimes we have a tendency to think of the spiritual path as something quite linear, um, almost a shoots and ladders variety, and you think you're on level 52 and there are 100 levels to get through, um, and then you slide back down to level 17. Well, um, it, it's not quite like that. It's much more fluid, much more dynamic. Um, and that the path itself continues to unfold, continues to evolve. And as one of the great Sufis, early Sufis said, the path has no end because the beloved has no end. The path has no end because the beloved has no end. So we want to set out on this path. And of course, the path is not only dependent on God, but on the ones here and now who make God real. Uh, these are the ones who become the embodiment of the divine light. And um, we call them prophetic figures, saintly figures, uh, guides and teachers, and illuminated souls. 
Uh, and in the Islamic tradition, there's a term that is used for them, which is referred to as the light of Muhammad. The light of Muhammad, which is not merely the physical, earthly, historical being of the Prophet, um, but really that ancient, primordial being. Um, in a wonderful saying of Muhammad, he, he calls himself, I am the mercy of the wide spaces. I am the mercy of the wide spaces. And, um, and Attar goes on to say that this light of Muhammad, which shines through Adam and Eve, and Moses, and Jesus, and Abraham, and Noah, and Solomon, and the earthly Muhammad, that this is so precious to God that the entire creation has been made for this light of Muhammad. Um, and so these beings come to embody the divine light for us, that they come to um, qualify their souls through these divine teachings. And um, as he is telling you about Muhammad and his great love for his companions and for his community and for his wife, um, he drops a little hint that I want you to uh, keep very close to your mind, and we might get to this at some point, um, probably next time. Um, we may end up taking two uh, weeks to go through Attar's um, Conference of the Birds. And uh, he simply introduces um, a bird. Birds are the central characters in this allegory. That's why it's called the Conference of the Birds, the Speech of the Birds. And he simply says, uh, the Seamork, which is the phoenix, the Seymourg is the divine soul. The Seymourg is the very soul of God. Um, keep that in mind. Because the totality of the conference of the birds is in many ways um, built around a pun. And we're going to encounter that pun at the end of this journey where the birds who complete the path come to see themselves as a reflection of the divine. But Attar already tells you, before there are any birds, before there is any quest, about the punchline. We set on the path having been told what the ultimate mystery is that we are reflections of God. And yet, when we come to the end of the path, we realize, ah, lo and behold, did you realize that we are reflections of God? That we are the mirrors of the divine? And so many allegories are like this. There is a character that we encounter in the beginning of the journey. The character might be younger, certainly much more insecure, uncertain of not just who he or she is, but what she is. And there's always an older wizard 
Sufi master, guru, who sees in the young uncertain character who and what he and she is supposed to become. But the seeker has to go on the journey. So if you think of the Lion King, Rafiki, that wise fool um, who hits Simba over the head, knows that Simba's father, Mufasa, lives in him and that Simba is destined to become a great king. But Simba doesn't want to have anything to do with it. He wants to go live in the jungle and eat maggots. And he wants to say, Hakuna Matara, until he goes on the journey and he accepts who and what he's supposed to become. You can think of something like Star Wars, where there is Anakin or Luke, each one of whom we meet at a very young point. And then there's the arc that they have to go through. They have to become a great master. In the case of Anakin, perhaps go over to the dark side of the Force and then have a redemption return. And if you were to tell Luke when he's a young Padawan that he's going to be someday a great Jedi, and he might even train other Jedis, he would never believe this. If you come to something like Lord of the Rings and you think about the extraordinary character of Aragorn, right? When he meet him, he's just a petty little officer, striker, just sitting in a corner of a bar. But he's supposed to become the king. So he doesn't fulfill his destiny until he goes on the quest. We can talk about Game of Thrones and Jon Snow, and maybe one day we'll do a Sufi take on Game of Thrones. Very similar dynamic there. In Attar, in the very beginning of the book, in fact, in the introduction, before we've met any of the birds, before we know about the stages of the path, he tells you that when you meet the phoenix, the Seymour, that is God. And you're going to be reflections of God. The mystery is that there is no mystery. The mystery is that the mystery is plain to see for those who have eyes and those who have an open heart. But our heart does not become open and our eyes do not become open until we go on the journey, until we're willing to go on the path. It's also important to realize that for Attar and for these mystics, for these seekers, um, it's not just about advanced metaphysics. Right? This is not a graduate seminar of philosophy. There's devotion, there's tenderness, there's love, there's mercy. So there's a very beautiful supplication that the Attar himself 
on behalf of all of us, offers towards the prophet, the prophetic figure, this illuminated master, um, whether it is the prophet Muhammad or Jesus or Moses or the Sufi guide who is guiding you on the path. And you connect to God in the company of people who have adorned themselves with these divine qualities. And what do you want? You want to have a glance of mercy. You want to be seen by someone whose glance is a loving glance and whose touch is a healing touch and whose words reach your heart. So Attar says, um, Ya Rasulallah, bastar mandam. Uh, oh, messenger of God, uh, I have faltered much. Empty-handed, with dust on my head, I have been left behind. Um, cast one glance towards me, just one. It would be a remedy for this condition of my heart that everyone says has no cure. And of course, this is the playful game of the lover, of the supplicant, of the seeker. Um, why is he asking for the prophet to look at him? Because if the prophetic figure, if the guide, if the illuminated teacher looks at you, if they see you, then your condition would not be so miserable. There's a healing in their glance, and that's what we are asking for. And I think keeping in mind this element of um, tenderness, of devotion, of love, and of mercy, as we're thinking about the mystical path, is quite important. Um, the way that Rumi tells his stories is very similar to the way that Attar tells his stories. You oftentimes get a story within a story, a story after a story, and these stories connect with one another. They pick up on similar themes. So right after he uh, Attar introduces this notion of um, asking the prophet to cast a loving glance towards you, he introduces a very moving story. And the story is of a mother who is walking by a stream, carrying her newborn child. And somehow she, she slips and the baby falls out of her hand and the baby falls into the river. And, uh, oh, and, and, and she is just overcome with this horrific realization. She sees her baby going uh, under the water and coming back up. And the baby obviously doesn't know how to drown, uh, how to swim, and is about to drown. And the mother is overcome with the most horrific existential angst about what to do. And then to make matters worse, she looks ahead and she sees that the stream is running towards a mill. And there is a millstone that is turning from the flow of the river. And everything that is coming down the river is going through the stone mill and being crushed and being turning this uh, giant mill. And so if her baby doesn't drown, then the baby might be still crushed by the mill. And so what is this mother to do? She has no choice. Uh, she jumps in the river. She throws herself into the middle of the stream. She may not even know how to swim, but that doesn't matter. 
she rescues the child, brings the baby to the shore, and this baby is wailing and crying um, at the trauma of what she has experienced. And so the mother does the one thing that she can think of to calm the baby down. She nurses the child. She takes her breast and puts it in the mouth of her newborn. And, and the baby takes this life-giving milk and is soothed and is calmed and relaxes. And at this point, there's a magnificent turn in the story. Attar turns to the prophet. And he says, Shir deh mara zepestane karam. O messenger of God, nurse me, suckle, suckle me through your breast of compassion and tenderness and generosity. Nurse me, O messenger of God. Now, the messenger of God, Muhammad, as is well known, was a man. And uh, one would be hard-pressed to get any milk to come from the breast of a man. But this, these are the moments in which Attar, as a mystic and as a poet and as a lover, is not going to confine himself with the conventional gender norms. He cares about the life milk, the love milk, the tenderness milk that comes from the prophet, not the conventional roles of a father and a mother. He wants a relationship with the prophet in that maternal capacity, in that loving capacity, in that tender capacity. And indeed, when you look at things this way, um, this will be especially meaningful for um, those of the friends that know some Arabic or Persian, Turkish or Urdu words. Uh, the Prophet Muhammad is usually addressed in Islam as a Nabi al-Ummi. Nabi al-Ummi. Nabi meaning the Prophet. And Ummi is usually translated as uh, the unlettered. Uh, meaning that the Prophet Muhammad has a knowledge which does not come directly from um, human learning. But at Tar like so many of these Sufis, digs a little deeper. And he says, well, isn't the word um, doesn't that mean mother? Isn't Muhammad really the mother prophet, the maternal prophet? And if he is the maternal prophet, if he's the one that loves us as our own mamas loved us, if we have been blessed, then, O oh Muhammad, nurse me, suckle me from this milk, this life-giving milk. So he wants to be intimate with God, and he wants to be intimate with the Prophet. He wants to have that direct relationship, not an abstract, intellectual, cool and historical relationship. He wants to have the relationship of a child to her mother. The most organic, umbilical relationship. 
from there, once he's introduced this notion of uh, a role, a conception for the prophet that uh, transcends transcends conventional gender norms, uh, we get introduced to other um, great Sufi masters, including people like Rabia. Rabia, as uh, we've already seen in some of the previous podcasts, probably the most famous of the female mystics in the Islamic tradition, uh, a lover of God who walks through the marketplace with a lit torch in one hand and a bucket of water in the other hand, uh, saying that if she could, she would find paradise and burn it down with that lit torch and she would find hell and quench it down with that bucket of water so that people have no reason left to worship God other than God. So that they're not worshiping God in order to get into heaven or to avoid hellfire, but it's for the sake of God. Um, this is the same Rabia that says, My Lord, if I worship you for the sake of heaven, make that heaven forbidden to me. If I worship you out of fear, of hell, burn me in that hell. But if I worship you for your own sake, do not withhold from me your eternal beauty. And so Attar comes back to Rabia and he says, Attar was not just a woman, she was more than a hundred men. Um, she was, and in this playful language, he says, she was a man of God. She was a man of God. So what is he really saying here? Um, he's saying that maleness and femaleness, manness and womanhood, these are matters of this world. These are gender constructions that we have that relate to our biological differences and the social meaning and values assigned to them in this world. But in that world, with God, when we are resurrected as souls, there are no men, there are no women, there is no masculine, there is no feminine. That is the realm of souls. And that in the eyes of God, God sees us through our hearts, God sees our souls. And so in this way of saying, yes, I recognize that our world, Attar speaking of, of his own 13th century Iranian Muslim society, maybe it still applies in our own North American 21st century society. Uh, our society is a hierarchical one. It is one where the institutions and the systems and the structures are set up to serve the needs of men and making life quite difficult for women. Attar recognizes that his own world is hierarchical, and so he flips it, he inverts it, and he says, the one that you thought was just this lowly woman, she is actually more than a hundred of the men that her worth and her value comes not from her maleness, not from her femininity. 
it comes from her relationship to God. Now, many of us wish that he would have said something like the following. Uh, you see, my friends, we have to recognize that uh, gender is a social construction, and like all social constructions, uh, it is a human phenomenon, and it has nothing to do with the essential heart quality of people. Well, he doesn't say that because no one spoke like that in the 13th century. Um, in the 13th century, what they would do was to point out the limited, finite nature of so many of our conventions, male and female, king and servant, lover and beloved. And they would reverse them. They would flip them in order to show us how fluid these are. The introduction to Mantarotere, the Conference of the Birds, ends with Attar going through uh, the first four Sunni caliphs. Um, these are the first four companions, very dear to Muhammad, uh, who each take a turn um, in the Sunni tradition, fulfilling the role as the successor to the Prophet Abu Bakr. Omar, Uthman, and Ali. Um, and Attar goes through praising each one of them, uh, of course, in the way that was um, unanimously agreed on in the pre-modern tradition, um, saving the greatest of the praise for the fourth one, Imam Ali, um, who uh, is said to be the, the gate, the door, to the city of wisdom, that is the prophet, that if you want to get to prophetic wisdom, you've got to go through Ali. And this is uh, Attar's own way of practicing a kind of pluralism, of saying that, well, we know that the Sunnis and the Shias are spending so much time arguing and fighting among themselves, but uh, we have to have love and respect for all of them, uh, that it doesn't matter which background you come from, the Sunni or the Shia, um, that uh, one can love all of the ones who love the prophet. So there is also an indication about leaving behind and leaving aside dogmaticness and fanaticism before we can proceed forth on the spiritual path. So that's the end of the introduction. And that's where we're going to stop. And in the second part of the Conference of the Birds podcast, here on Sufi Heart, we will take you through the rest of the journey and talk about the journey of the birds and their meeting with the phoenix, who is a reflection of themselves. Until then, may you be in peace and may your hearts be full of light and love. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Time can feel like it's in short supply. Between work, family, and friends, there's very little time left just for you. What would you do with an extra hour in your day? What's important to you? Therapy can help you find what matters to you so that you can do more of it. It's a great way to increase self-awareness, build a greater sense of purpose, 
deal with overthinking, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash BeHereNow today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash BeHereNow.